This is the 31st sermon that we have preached going through the Sermon on the Mount. It's been a pretty in-depth series that we've gone through, and we've looked at, really, the quintessential teaching of Jesus on what it means to be His disciple, what it means to, to follow Him, to emulate Him, to try to be like Him in every way, really seeking to be like our master rabbi, which is what this is. This is his yoke, his teaching, his, his explanation of what it means to be his follower. And today, we look at his final teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, which also happens to be his final warning and a continuation of what he's been cautioning his hearers against for the last several parts of this sermon. So I just, I'm going to give you guys a little bit of a pep talk here in the beginning of this. Um, This isn't a light sermon because the words of Jesus here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount are not light. This isn't an overly encouraging sermon. Jesus didn't leave the end of the Sermon on the Mount on a high note. He kind of left it on a down note. It was kind of a a mic drop walk away moment that was not easy to hear. And so this isn't going to be a make you feel good at the end of things sermon. Throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been sharing what hope looks like, and that's Him. And He's been encouraging us to pursue righteousness and to hunger and thirst after righteousness and to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness which we know is Christ. And now at the end of the sermon, He is warning us. He's very solemnly sharing with us how easy it is to be deceived into thinking that you're on safe spiritual footing when in reality you're deceived and you're in a very precarious place. And so, his end of this sermon here is meant to cause us to reflect on our own walk with him, our own pursuit of him, and ask ourselves, are we really seeking the grace and mercy of God as a disciple, or do we just want the blessings that come from being a Christian, but don't really want Christ himself? So I would urge you, as Christ urged His hearers with these final words, to focus and listen intently because there's really no breaks in this sermon. It's pretty intense from beginning to end. Um, I don't have any fun little stories and little jokes as we go because that would not be appropriate to the tone of the passage. And we always seek to preach the tone of the passage. So... Let's repent of whatever is necessary, be reminded that, praise God, there is always grace and mercy and forgiveness. He is always waiting for us to turn to Him and remind us that He's already won the fight for us, but He is setting forth the expectations of obedience for His disciples. And by the grace of God, that is what we must be, obedient disciples. Amen? So, 
Let's turn to Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 24. Now we've had our little pep talk. And we're going to dive in here and read, starting in verse 24, but first I'm going to pray. Father, we come before you, and we ask you, Lord, to search us, search our minds, Lord, search our hearts, and see if there be any grievous way in us. Lord, and lead us in the way everlasting, the way to your Son, Jesus. We don't want to be superficial, surface followers. We want to be devoted, obedient, wise disciples of yours. And Lord, we ask your Holy Spirit to lead us into that. We know we can't do this under our own strength. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask you to fill us and lead us, open our hearts and minds, convict us where you must, and help us to be pierced and repent of whatever it is we must, that we would be more devoted and obedient children of you. Lord, speak through me. I pray that my words would be yours and that your truth is all that would be spoken tonight. I pray this in Jesus' name. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So ends Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He closes his master sermon with a final exhortation to his hearers, and he begins by referring back to the pleas that he has already been giving them, referring back to the warnings he's already been given them. If I were you, in your Bibles, I would circle the word then or therefore at the beginning of verse 24. And I would draw an arrow specifically back to verse 21 because that's really what Jesus is referencing back to. It's a connection word back to the illustrations in the preceding verses And it concludes a line of teaching that began back in verse 13 with the narrow and the broad gates. In that illustration, he made clear that there are two paths and only two paths. There is the easy road with the broad gate and the hard road with the narrow gate. One leads to destruction and one leads to life. And then he moved on and he talked about the many false teachers who will come along, trying to tickle your ears and deceiving you. And he said the only way that you will be able to know the difference is if you evaluate the fruit in their lives. And by implication, he calls us to evaluate the fruit in our own lives. And in verse 19, Jesus says that trees that produce bad fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. 
The third emphasis is a warning against those who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ and who outwardly do good works in His name. But inwardly, they have no real relationship with Him. And if their lives are closely scrutinized, you'll see that it's full of bad fruit. They are workers of lawlessness. They're evildoers. And Jesus says in verse 23 that these pseudo-followers of His will be rejected by Him when they stand before His judgment throne. And now Jesus picks up directly on this final warning to those who are self-deceived, and He presents a parable trying to get all of us to understand the paramount, imperative significance of obediently following Christ and how that is evidence of true relationship with Him, that we have hearts that are obediently seeking after Him so that we won't be deceived into thinking that we're standing with the Lord when we're really not. But before we jump into this imperative parable, I want to look at a couple of interpretive points. This will just help to get this in proper focus, kind of like a a microscope. You need to dial it in so that we see clearly, right? And, And so, there are three imperative points that I want us to hold on to. Imperative point number one, Jesus talks twice as much about hell as heaven in His teachings. And we see this illustrated here in verses 13 through 27. And He does this so that we recognize the seriousness, the gravity of what He's teaching us. He isn't just flippantly speaking here. He isn't just kind of off the cuff saying these things. He's very solemnly speaking truth directly to our hearts and minds And he's pleading with his hearers to take seriously the words that he's speaking. Because the reality is that this is far more dangerous than life or death. These consequences are eternal. And you are either with him forever as his obedient disciple, or you are separated from him forever as his enemy. There is no in-between. So, point number one, we have to recognize the seriousness of this message. Interpretive point number two, Jesus is making clear that He is speaking to His hearers with the same authority as God the Father. Jesus is not preaching as just some random rabbi. He's saying here, I and the Father are one. Look at the phrase, these words of mine in verses 24 and 26. In the Greek, the word for words here is logos, which means all of these words, everything that I say, the whole teaching here, which means that we can't just kind of pick and choose what we want to hear. All of these words of mine, but he puts the emphasis on mine. All of these words of mine. In the Greek, that's in in the emphatic, which means that the authority the the center is on Christ Himself. They are originating with Him alone, and He alone has the authority to speak them. But more than that, Jesus is equating His words in verses 24 and 26 
with the will of God the Father in verse 21. This is a, in a very important connection here. Do you see the, the similar structure? Jesus says, whoever hears these words of mine and does them will ultimately be saved. And in verse 21, it says, the one who does the will of the Father will enter the kingdom of heaven. We see those constructions. It's about doing the will of the Father and about doing the words of the Son. The words of the Son and the will of the Father are the same. Jesus has the authority of God to speak because He is God. And Pastor Austin is going to dive into that authority next week as he finishes off the epilogue in the Sermon on the Mount. But here today, Jesus is reminding us of His authority when He says these words of mine to emphasize that we better listen to Him alone. Not what the Pharisees or scribes say, not what some pastor with a microphone says, not what some article we read or Facebook post or someone who comes up to us with a word from the Lord says, certainly not what the culture says or any other avenue that the enemy would use to deceive us. We are to listen to the words of Christ alone, the, the, the full counsel of God, all of sacred scripture, and then we are to use that as our standard and that as our measuring stick against everything else that we hear. We're to hear Jesus first and foremost so that we can discern all the talk from everyone else and ultimately know the voice of our master, of our shepherd, that we may follow him and submit to him and be more and more like him. Interpretive point number three, this is all about the wise application of and obedience to the words of Christ. This entire warning here, and really the last several warnings, are really all about obedience. And I want to say this, very, this is very, very important. This is not, Jesus is not asking us to be perfectly obedient. He is not giving us a list of things to do that we have to check the box off so that we can say, okay, we're good. He's not teaching works-based righteousness here in any way. This isn't something that we earn. What He is demanding from us is a heart of obedience that is willing to seek hard after Him that is willing to do the hard work of pursuing Him through all of the other muck and mire that we face in this world. This is so, so important because if we're not careful, we can twist these words and make it all about some sort of legalistic standard that we have to attain to. That's not what Jesus is teaching us. He's teaching us a message of grace but he's setting forth the expectation to his followers of what it looks like to respond rightly to grace. Very, very important. The Greek word for hears in verses 24 and 26 is in the present continuous tense, meaning someone who hears once and then hears over and over and over and over again. They continue to hear it. Jesus is speaking to people who are hearing the message and continuing to hear it. Jesus is saying, look, if you 
listen to podcasts every week of Christ-centered teaching, and you sit in the pews of a church every week and hear truth, but you never submit to it. You never put it into practice through the power of the Holy Spirit. He's being very blunt, and he says, you're going to go to hell. You are on your way to hell. Praise God, he gives us this warning because it's meant to get us off of that easy road with the broad gate and on to the narrow, the road that leads to the narrow gate, the hard road that leads to the narrow gate. John MacArthur, he said, the only validation we can ever have of salvation is a life of obedience. That is the only proof Scripture mentions of our being under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. True salvation does the will of the Lord, trusting Him, being devoted to Him. It responds rightly to God's grace with a love and devotion for Him that desires to seek Him and serve Him above all else. Again, this isn't about some legalistic checklist. This is about a heart that hungers after God, that hungers after serving Him. He isn't demanding perfect obedience. He's just demanding an obedient heart that desires Him. And go back and look through the Sermon on the Mount, and you can see clearly, He doesn't expect us to perfectly keep that. None of us can will ourselves to be poor in spirit. None of us can, can be so good that we are perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. None of us are going to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness every single day at all times. But by the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can have hearts that desire to do that and are seeking after that as far as the Lord gives us, as much as we can resist the temptations and distractions of the enemy and of the flesh and of the world. Jesus is exhorting us He's warning us, and He's reminding us here why He alone and His words alone are the rock upon which we must obediently build, nothing else. He's reminding us of who He is, that He is the one who has life, that it comes through Him, that He is the one who is going to die on the cross for the sins of the world, that He is the one through Grace, by faith, can break the chains and the bondage of our sin, will take our punishment that we are set free to serve Him and love Him and love God and love others. That's what He's driving at here. This is a message of hope, but it's a message of hope that is through a warning that is hard to hear if you're not on the right side of God's grace. He loves us too much not to plead with us to choose to submit to the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives and obey all the words of our master teacher. That is what he is calling us to, to have a heart that seeks to submit, to desire to submit. He'll work that in us if we ask him to do that. 
But Jesus knows that not everyone is going to be moved by a warning or, or even three warnings as he's given. So he breaks this down into a parable so that everyone can visualize and understand what his expectations are. And so we look at this imperative parable and we see that he gives us the image of two men building two houses, each of them going through a storm, but then there being two different outcomes. One man is a fool and one man is wise. One man has a house when the storm ends and the other one doesn't. So let's break this parable down and, and see what Jesus is driving at. And Jesus begins by talking about the wise man. Now, again, if you're going for the feel-good approach, you'd end with the wise man, because any kind of end on the upswing there, he starts with the wise man and ends with the fool. And if you have read the Bible at any length, then you probably realize that wisdom, along with love and humility, are one of the chief characteristics of those who follow Christ. It's one of the chief characteristics of those who have a relationship with Him, who have an appropriate reverence and awe of fear of the Lord. And Jesus says that the one who hears His words and does them is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. Now, in most places in the New Testament, the Greek word for wise is sophos, which refers to rightly applying what you know, right application of knowledge. But here the Greek word is different. It's a different word for wise. And this Greek word refers to being prudent, strategic, sensible, shrewd. It refers to someone who thoughtfully considers something who, who discerns and, and, and takes in the correct information, is able to work through all of the distraction and deception, and insightfully act upon truth. It's the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 10, 16, when He says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents, there's the word, and innocent as doves. The key emphasis here is that this sort of wisdom thoughtfully considers what it hears and sees and then it rightly acts upon it. It's not quick to action, it doesn't act without thinking, and it rightly responds to the truth that it claims to have submitted to. This prudent and sensible Man takes his time to build his house on the rock. And these rocks, they aren't just stones near the surface that we kind of find, oh, this looks like a good, strong rock, and I'll just build on here. This rock is the immovable bedrock, deep down, upon which all the other dirt and sand and sediment rests. See, the wise man is willing to do the hard, dirty sometimes very dull and repetitive work of digging down deep to the bedrock 
and building the foundation of his house upon that immovable stone. He's thought through what he's doing and realized that this is the only way that his house will remain standing when the storms come. And it's important that we see here that in this parable, the bedrock doesn't equate with Jesus himself, although elsewhere in the New Testament and throughout Scripture, we are told that Christ is the foundation, he is the rock of our salvation, he is the firm ground on which we stand. But in this parable, the bedrock equates to the words of Christ. And of course, the words of Christ are just an example and expression of Christ himself. But the words of Christ are the bedrock. And digging deep, the process of digging down to the bedrock, that is what obediently following all the words of Christ look like. We are to dig deep to get to the words of Christ, work hard to obediently follow the words of Christ, the words of our master, the words of our rabbi. And that process is going to be hard and dirty and sometimes dull and repetitive. But that's the only way to have true relationship with Christ as we walk in submission to him and get to know who he is and how he would have us serve him. No other foundation will withstand the ravages of the storm of this life, of which we're all going to face, but most importantly, the storm of final judgment to come. Here, here's the trick to this. Sometimes it's, it's really hard to know the difference between the rock and the sand. Sometimes they look a whole lot alike. The shifting sand can be deceiving. I might think I'm on solid ground. When I was over in Israel, one of the things I learned was in the dry season in particular, when the sand gets compacted down, it can look a whole lot like stone. It can be very deceptive. And unless you intentionally test it, you could be deceived by it into thinking you're on solid footing. On top of that, because of the high salt content of the Dead Sea and of the surrounding area, in the dry season when the waters recede, hardened sand mixed with salt will often cover over sinkholes. And as soon as any heavy weight gets put upon it or as soon as the rains come and soften it up, those sinkholes collapse. So, if you go around the Dead Sea, you will see all over the place warning signs. Do not walk on the sand, because if you do, you're probably going to get sucked into a sinkhole and die. The only place you go is on the pathway that is proven to be founded on the bedrock. Now, a prudent, wise person who is shrewd, strategic, taking things in, discerning, they don't make the mistake of building on the sand. But a fool, on the other hand, they're in trouble. And Jesus contrasts the wise man who surveys the land 
works hard and, and digs deep to lay a foundation on the bedrock with the foolish man who builds his house right on the surface, just right here, very superficial, on the sand. In the Greek, the word for foolish is the base word for our English word, moron, and it refers to someone who acts impetuously and without thought to what he's doing. This isn't about a lack of intelligence. It has nothing to do with intelligence. These people can be highly intelligent. The defining factor of the foolish man is they have a hurried lack of thoughtful effort. They're just seeking instant gratification and will take the easy way to get it. Just staying on the surface. So just as building and digging deep on the rock symbolizes the devoted work of obediently following Christ and adhering to the words of Jesus, building on the sand symbolizes the superficial pursuit of living for yourself, of making yourself feel good and the deception that we can fall into and the pursuit of self-satisfaction. Well, we start to really get to the heart of, of what Jesus is driving at here because oftentimes it's, it's really hard to see a difference from the outside between the fool and the wise man. Because usually the houses that they build are very, very similar. In fact, looking at the houses in the parable, we see that they're pretty much identical. They're built in the same locale. They both go through the same storm. And they're constructed pretty much the same way. In fact, the only difference that's mentioned is the foundation upon which they're built, and the foundation isn't even visible from the outside. The point that Jesus is making is that these two builders, the two people who are building these houses, they look very, very similar and are probably going to be found in the same place, a place that today we call the church. Jesus is showing us that the difference between the true Christian and the deceived pseudo-Christian is a very subtle one. Because they have the same desires, it's not a question of desire. Both the foolish person and the wise person, they want to be forgiven. They want to find peace and comfort. They want to experience joy. They want to be a good wife or husband or father or son or mother or sister, employer, employee, friend. They both desire to draw closer to God and to receive spiritual guidance and direction, and they want to generally live a good life. And they certainly believe in heaven and probably hell too. In fact, Jesus isn't addressing people who are outwardly denying truth. That would be easy. There's no subtle difference there. 
This isn't someone who is saying, I reject Christ. He's speaking directly to people who are orthodox in what they say they believe. They could probably teach a Sunday school class, and their theology wouldn't be that bad. But the problem emerges when you evaluate their life and you see if their heart is actually seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness? Is it hungering and thirsting after the righteousness of God and being satisfied? Or is it finding its satisfaction in something else in this world, in someone else in this world? That's why the difference is so subtle. Jesus is getting to the heart and he's exposing what is coming out of your heart. Are you obeying out of a love and devotion or are you really just kind of staying on the surface, looking good to most people looking on, but your heart is not really for God? Proverbs 30 Verse 12 says, there are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. We can know all the right answers and yet be a fool who isn't submitted to truth. Jesus is letting us know that it's not enough to believe truth. Remember James chapter 2, even the demons believe He is seeking and warning and pleading with us to submit to truth, to submit to Him who is the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. And the evidence of submission to truth is if we're willing to dig deep down in our pursuit of Him, to keep on pressing through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, empowering us and spurring us on to greater depths, seeking that bedrock. Listen to the parallel passage of this teaching in Luke 6, and you'll begin to see even more clearly what Jesus is driving at. Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house, who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great." The difference between the wise and the foolish is that one will dig deep in their faith to obediently follow Christ, while the other will stay on the surface and remain content just playing the part of the Christ follower. So if you're like me, you're asking yourself the question, why? Why why would the foolish person not dig into their faith? If they're hearing that message over and over again, 
If they're exposed to truth all the time, why don't they dig? Why don't I dig? Lord, how can I avoid being that fool? I've been preaching this to myself all week, trust me. Well, I'll give you four qualities, four qualities of the fool that we can discern from this parable. Quality number one, fools are always in a hurry. You think it's any coincidence that our culture is defined by a hurried, frenetic way of life? The enemy knows what he's doing. He's teaching us to just hurry, 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 rush, 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 all the time without any real deep thought to what we're actually doing or why we're doing it why we're letting this thing control us. The fool is always in a hurry, and therefore the fool is willing to take shortcuts and not work hard, do the diligent task of doing it the right way. The fool acts impatiently and often responds in a panic when things don't go their way. Has no ability to rest in the Lord when the storm's shaking their world. Isaiah 28, 16 says, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. So there's a verse that refers to Christ as the stone. But then what he says, he says, whoever believes will not be in haste. We don't have to be in a hurry. God's got it. Quality number two, very closely related to the first. Fools don't think things through. They act impetuously on a whim, typically driven by their emotions and desires, and making decisions without reminding themselves of truth or spending time discerning the wise way forward. Their emotions and feelings are always out in front. It's always about what seems right to me, what makes me feel good. That's what I'm going to do. And therefore, when things don't go their way, again, the foundation is eroded because they don't hang on to truth. They make their own truth based off of what they think and feel and what seems right to them according to what the world around them is saying. Are we, are we hanging on to the words of Christ as truth? Are they providing strength to us in the storm? Are we able to slow down and, and not let our emotions get out in front of us, but take our emotions and put them in submission to the truth? Asking the Holy Spirit to lead us into truth, to give us self-control through those storms. Are we hearing truth and holding on to it, meditating upon it, letting it define and helping us 
to have our minds renewed, or are we forgetting about it as soon as we walk away? James 1.22 says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and then goes away at once and forgets what he was like. fool gets wrapped up in other things and is distracted from the truth and operates without thinking, without thinking things through. Quality number three, fools are selfish. They pursue their own desires and goals above all else, only seeking to please themselves. The fool's life revolves around them. But, but, he, but here's a trick here. The fool knows that there are lots of blessings in God. There are, there are blessings in Christianity, and the fool wants those blessings for themselves, but only if it comes easy. If they can just stay on the surface and get it. And therefore, the fool isn't really interested in the full counsel of God, doesn't really take in all of Scripture, won't submit to the whole gospel. The fool will just pick and choose what they want to follow. The fool wants the blessings of God, but doesn't really want God himself. The fool isn't interested in righteousness or holiness or becoming more like Christ, just the comfortability of heavenly blessing and making sure that they're a pretty good person by their own estimation and standard. Quality number four, fools are full of pride, not submitting to the warnings or instructions given to them. They just, they just build their house where they think is best. That looks like a good spot. Oh, you're telling me I can't build there? Pfft. I'll build how I want. Forget what the legal codes say about reinforcing and strong foundation and good framing. Eh, all that stuff is just too much work. Fools hear truth and then they just disregard it when it doesn't jive with their prideful position. So, how do we feel about the teachings of Christ, the teachings of Scripture? How do we feel about the Sermon on the Mount? Are we, are we offended by the words of Christ? Do we feel judged and condemned by it, wanting to just disregard it, resenting it, ignoring it, or rejecting a part of it? Well, that's what the fool does. Now, praise God that there's a wise man in this parable. Amen? And the wise man did dig, and he found the foundation. And he digs because he's not deceived by the sands. Praise God that that can be us. <laughs> Amen? 
The wise man wants a long-lasting, durable home, and his feelings and his emotions, they don't drive him to act rashly. They drive him to dig deep into Christ. Jesus was an extremely emotional person. So there's nothing wrong with that. It needs to be in submission to the truth as we thoughtfully, shrewdly discern and build and pursue Christ, digging deep, going hard after Him. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, The wise man is a man who desires and prays for holiness and who strives after it. He does his utmost to be holy because his supreme desire is to know Christ. Not only to be forgiven, not only to go to heaven, but to know Christ now. To have Christ as brother, to have Christ as his companion. To be walking with Christ in the light now. To enjoy a foretaste of heaven here in this world of time. That is the man who builds upon the rock. He is a man who loves God for God's sake and whose supreme desire and concern is that God's name and God's glory may be magnified and spread abroad. That's who we can be by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. But remember, it's it's difficult to discern that. And that's why the Lord has ordained storms in our lives the rain and the floods and the winds that come and beat against our lives. See, Christ very intentionally chooses this imagery because the rain symbolizes the waves and the, the, the storms that come through from our flesh that will tempt us in cycles. And the floods symbolize the pressure to conform to the world And the winds symbolize the very intentional attacks of the enemy. See, with our three adversaries there. And when those storms come, the rain and the floods and the winds, instead of seeing these things in a negative light, we should begin to see them as an opportunity to be shown the reality of our spiritual state. What is our heart really doing in this moment? Because one day we're going to go through the final storm where the house collapses and now we stand before the Lord because we were in the house when it collapsed. But not yet. We're going to face these, many of these storms here in this life, and they are a mercy from God to help us understand the foundation that we're built on, to help us to see if any of the house has crumbled because it's not built on the rock. That's grace. That's the Lord saying, it's not too late. You can rebuild, dig deep, seek God, seek Christ, wisely obey Him as your Lord and Master, that your heart would seek after Him. Because these storms will lead to our destruction if we continue to 
stay on the surface. But until then, we have opportunity by the power of God. The Lord wants us to recognize the deception we may have fallen into so that we can stop living on the surface, stop walking in deception, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, begin to take the first shovel full of sand, toss it aside, and start digging deep to the bedrock. Amen? Let's pray.